Thank you so much to all our volunteers for uh, helping us hold our worship service, and thank you so much to everybody else for helping us worship. We're so grateful that each one of you are here today. So this afternoon we continue our study in the Bible of passages where mountains are used to teach us about God, and as we focus in on Psalm 36, I'd like to introduce us to this idea that mountains help shape our understanding of the size and the scope of things. Mountains help shape our understanding of the size and the scope of things, and that's exactly what the poet or the songwriter who wrote Psalm 36 is directing our attention to this afternoon. So I thought we'd start off with kind of an interactive illustration of that idea. So I want everybody, if you're not already, to look out the window at Lone Peak. You'll see that beautiful view. I did a little research. It's officially listed at 11,167 feet. And of course, the numbers alone are difficult to comprehend. Like, what do those numbers mean as far as tallness or height? So I thought we'd compare them to some objects that we might be a little bit more familiar with. So just for fun, I'd like you to turn to somebody close to you and take a guess as to how many Statues of Liberty stacked on top of each other would it take to get to the top of Lone Peak? How many Statues of Liberties? Take a guess. Uh, from base level. Base level. Yeah. All right, the answer is 36 Statues of Liberty Statue of Liberty is on a large pedestal, and from bottom to top, it's 306 feet. So it would take over 36 to stack up from base level to get to the top. All right, how about this? I can tell we have a lot of really cultured people here. So how many Eiffel Towers would it take stacked on top of each other to get to the top? What's your guess? That's good. All right, the Eiffel Tower is 984 feet, so it would take 11 Eiffel Towers stacked on top of each other to get to the top of Lone Peak. How about this? We're all pretty familiar with school buses. We've all ridden on them once or twice. How many school buses from bumper to bumpers stacked on top of each other height-wise would it take to equal 11,000 feet? 279. Was anybody within 10? All right, all right. Some of you were like, what's this guy doing talking about French stuff? So forget the Eiffel Tower. The average eruption of Old Faithful is 135 feet. How many Old Faithfuls fully erupting would it take to get to the top of Lone Peak? What's your guess? Just give a number. We got some skilled mathematicians. 82 would be the answer. And here's our final one. The average redwood tree is 220 feet tall. How many average redwood trees stacked on top of each other would it take to get to the top of Lone Peak? 50. All right. Good job. Hey, some of you, some of you might be more accurate than me. Pastors are really bad at math. If somebody asks me how many people were at church today, I'd probably be like, about 200. So... Pastors are bad at math. All right. So mountains help shape our understanding of the size and the scope of things. 
I could just have told you that Lone Peak was about two miles high, but it's, it's easier to conceptualize when we're stacking things on top of each other that we're a little bit more familiar with. So I'd like to spend the next 15 minutes or so studying this poem or this song from Psalm 36 with a particular focus on what it says in verse 6. Because Psalm 36, 6 is telling us a few very relevant and impactful things. The songwriter in Psalm 36 is telling us that God's righteousness, it's beyond measure. It's more than we can record. It's, it's greater than the highest mountain that we can conceptualize. And secondly, the, the songwriter is telling us even, even better than that, that God's not storing it up for himself. Because God's righteousness is meant to flow into our lives and then out of our lives to influence others. I hope you guys got an outline in your bulletin when you came in, and I would just like us to study Psalm 36 in two parts. In section one, I want us to go over the poet's exploration of our need for righteousness. Each one of us need righteousness, and that's what the poem opens up by exploring. And in section two, let's talk about the poet's exploration of the abundance of God's righteousness, all right? So section one, we need righteousness. Section two, God has it for us. All right, so Psalm 36 begins uh, with this, uh, this kind of exploration of our need for righteousness. And just so that we're all kind of understanding this in the same terms, the theological definition for righteousness is this. It's the general doctrine that God is good and right and just in all that he does. Even our best leaders make mistakes from time to time. Even our best mothers and fathers and caregivers have uh, uh, mistakes from time to time. So to say that somebody is righteous means that they're always good, they're always right, they're always just. And the Bible tells us that God is the only pure form of righteousness. Uh, so the poet here is telling us that uh, the, the poet wants us to get to a place where we understand that God is always good. He always makes the right decisions. And the totality of who God is and what he does is always pleasant and always pure. But interestingly enough, before Psalm 36 gets there to that point, it starts off by exposing our wickedness, my wickedness, your wickedness. Psalm 36 gives us a definition of wickedness that's a little bit more close to home or accusatory than we would probably choose for ourselves. When I say the word wicked, you guys probably think of Cruella de Vil from 101 Dalmatians, like somebody who's so evil that they want to make a fur coat out of puppies. That is breathtakingly wicked. And that's, that's what we think of. How about the sensei from Karate Kid? Like, most people learn karate so they won't be bullied anymore. But this guy is so wicked that he's teaching them how to use karate to be more effective bullies. That's wicked. Uh, there was, a, 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 I guess, a disgraced invent, uh, investor named Bernie Madoff who committed $64 billion in fraud. That money was taken from individuals. That money was taken from companies. $64 billion is a lot of money to take from people. You have to admit, that's wicked. And maybe, maybe you're an environmentalist. Do you know the largest forest fire in history was started by one person? 
in Canada in 1950, and it went on to devastate 300 million acres of woodlands. One person's carelessness. When we talk about wickedness, we think about things like that. Things that are just breathtakingly sinful and destructive and wrong. But as uncomfortable as it is to point out, Psalm 36 starts off with at least three ways that we are wicked. And it wants us to see it in our own lives. Uh, Turn, if you would, to Psalm 36, verse 2, for this kind of first diagnostic warning. And Psalm 36, 2 says this, and it's talking about wicked people. In their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their own sin. In other words, each one of us, myself included, I'm first in line, we are wicked when we rationalize and excuse our own wrongdoing. I'm surely not the only one here that from time to time rationalizes and excuses their own sinfulness. Have you guys have ever said the phrase, well, he had it coming? <laughs> Do you know what you're saying? You're saying, yeah, I was wrong, but he deserved it. You're rationalizing your own wrongdoing. If you're ever confronted with something regarding your behavior and you immediately bring up somebody else who was more or also guilty, you're falling short of Psalm 36 too. Um, I've been married for over 20 years and you know, after the first couple of years of marriage, arguments go like this. Honey, you didn't load the dishwasher correctly and a plastic cup got melted. Oh yeah? Well, your mother backed into our car during her last visit and cost us $1,000 insurance deductible. And that's a lot more expensive than a melted cup, right? Like, we're wicked when we rationalize and excuse our own wrongdoing, no matter how justified it feels or no matter how, how common it feels in the moment. If you're a kid, if you're married, if you have coworkers, you probably do this all the time. And you say things like, why are you mad at me for being two minutes late when that guy was 12 minutes late last Thursday, right? And this technique is so common that we don't really think of it as wrong, but it's wicked in the sense that we we don't excuse it in others and we rationalize it and make excuses when we do it. And Psalm, the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 36, 2 is saying, we're wicked when we rationalize and excuse our own wrongdoing. How about this? Let's, let's look at what it says in Psalm 36, 3. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. And this is fascinating because I like to think of three different categories. Good, neutral, and bad. And on the days when I don't do good, I like to just think of myself as having had a neutral moral day. And I think, well, at least I wasn't bad, right? I was just neutral. Uh, But Psalm 36.3 is telling us that when we fail to do good, God counts that as wickedness. We've probably all had moments when we have this awareness or this realization that we haven't helped or served or aided anybody recently. And we just kind of say, well, at least I'm not actively bad. I've just been complacent. I just haven't been as serious about doing good things as I should. And there's nothing evil about that. But I just want to point out that Psalm 36.3 says that the failure to do good is 
wicked. There's no such thing as neutralness. Here's an illustration that I think is pretty powerful. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world and I've gone to some refugee camps. And when you find yourself in a refugee camp or leaving a refugee camp and you see all those people huddled against the fence, wanting to get out, wanting to get to a place of more opportunity, there's just a, or, or maybe when you're driving through a border town, there's just something in your mind that says, I'm glad they're on that side of the fence. Because this side of the fence is mine. If they come over here, my health care is going to go up. Our schools are going to have less resources. Like, that's their problem to figure out. This is, this is my kingdom. This is my country. But of course, what would your perspective be if you were on the other side of the fence? You'd say, they have so much. And I have nothing but the clothes on my back. Why can't they do good in just giving me a step up towards a better life? And that's just an illustration of how we, we think that there's a such thing as neutralness, but it's often a matter of perspective. And the other perspective often exposes how self-centered our perspective can be at times. Well, there's kind of one more diagnostic that this poem starts off with. And in Psalm 36.4, it says this, Even on their beds they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and they do not reject what is wrong. In other words, we're wicked when we we predetermine self-centered or sinful behavior. We've all had days where things are going wrong and we're getting worn down and we feel tempted and we just don't have enough resolve to resist and we give in to temptation. And we've all sinned and we've all been defeated in that way. But what it's saying in Psalm 36.4 is that there's sometimes when you sit in your bed at night and you come up with a plan of doing something wrong, you, you load up that dialogue in your head of how you're going to gossip against a coworker. You make that list in your head of what your spouse or your kid has done wrong so the next time they anger you, you can go right to the list. You predetermined to be lustful or any other ways that we can fall short of how God has called us to live. We're wicked when we predetermine self-centered or sinful behavior. So that's not the way that I would have started off this poem, but that's the way that the songwriter in Psalm 36 starts off the psalm. He's saying or she's saying, There's, you don't think of yourself as wicked, And you don't think of yourself as needing goodness and justness and righteousness. But if you just think about a couple of of common everyday occurrences, you excuse in yourself what you condemn and accuse of others. And by that metric, we all fall fall short of of, of the perfection and the all-encompassing goodness that we're called to live with. There's definitely people in here that are better than others. There's definitely people in this town that are more benevolent than others. But what it's really saying is there's nobody that can stand before God and say, I'm good enough. Okay, that's what Psalm 36 is starting off by saying. But in the Bible, there's never bad news by itself. The bad news always leads into good news. And so what the psalmist is telling us here is that if you are honest enough to see the wickedness in your own life, The good news is this, God has more righteousness than he he needs. 
He's got more than a mountain, and it's meant to flow into our lives and out of our lives to others. So let's wrap, wrap up here in section two with, with three things that are just really good news from this beautiful metaphor. The metaphor, the image, is that God's goodness, his, his righteousness is like a mountain. And there's three really encouraging things that we can take out of that poetic image. Uh, let's read what it says in the psalmist's own words. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice is like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. So the, the writer here in Psalm 36, you know what they're doing? They're taking all the buses, all the redwood trees, all the Eiffel Towers of the sinful things that we've done. And he's saying, she's saying, stack all the bad things that you've done on top of each other and it still falls short of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is enough to cover up my unrighteousness, your unrighteousness. And even though it's just a, a quick image in a poem, there's some real beauty there for those of us that take time to contemplate what it's really trying to tell us. How beautiful that the Bible uses this to introduce us to the righteousness of God. He's got enough for all of us. None of us have enough, but God has enough for all of us. The second really encouraging thing from this image is really the secret of Christian living. If you want to live with vitality, if you want to have a dynamic faith, if you want to be encouraging and uplifting to those around you, this is really the essence, the, the secret to that. That God wants to take his reservoir, his mountain of righteousness, and he wants to pour it out into our lives. And if you're discouraged in your faith, if you're discouraged spiritually, I'm almost certain that on some level, it's because you're trying to be righteous on your own and you're falling short and you're discouraged. And so the good news from Psalm 36 is that in all the ways that we make that mistake, God's telling us that that's not what I'm asking of you. I'm not asking you to live a perfect day. I'm not asking you to give every, get everything right. God's saying in Psalm 36, I'm just asking you to see me as the source of righteousness and to let that be what powers your efforts to love God and love others. Um, it tells us this message in the Old Testament. It, it, it really, it tells it to us very clearly right here. Let me read Psalm 36, uh, 7 to nine, and just listen to how the songwriter is telling us that God's not trying to keep his righteousness in the mountain. He wants to distribute it. He wants to dispense it into our lives. It says, people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In other words, in this ancient song, He's telling us that, that we can live with a spiritual fullness. We can live with a spiritual life. We can live with spiritual light. And these are all things that come from God, not things that we have to manufacture or earn or work for on our own. I thought this might be a helpful illustration. When I just got out of college, I was a teacher uh, at an after-school program, uh, and it was also a summer camp, and we were severely underfunded. And uh, sometimes in the summertime, for example, we would have, I would have to come up with programming for over 100 students for up to 50 hours a week, and I had a $30 budget. 
<laughs> so I was always just gathering up change in my car or extra uh, dollars in my pocket to buy the supplies that we needed to kind of run this program. And since we just got married, we didn't have very much money, and my wife is always more fiscally responsible than I am, so sometimes she would say things like, uh, you know, what, what happened to that $10 that you had in your wallet? And I'd say, oh, I, I spent it on crickets. <laughs> She'd be like, well, why did you spend it on crickets? Well, I needed something to feed the turtle that I just bought. She'd say, well, what? Why did you buy a turtle? And I'd say, well, I, it's for the classroom at school. And she'd say, oh, that's, that's why there was a $60 charge on our debit card at PetSmart, and we don't even have any pets, right? Like, just, just always scrounging around to come up with what you needed to get through that week of activities. But then career-wise, you work your way up a little bit if you're, if you're working hard and making good choices. And a few years later, I found myself working as a youth pastor for a church. And they gave me a company credit card. <laughs> and with that company credit card, not that I abused it, but I never had to dig for change again. I never had to feel underfunded. I never had to feel like I was planning a summer's worth of activities with my own resources because of the generosity of the church. I had that credit card to get anything that I needed. In the same way, Psalm 36 is telling us that we, we, we try to live the life that God has called us to live on our own resources, just with the things that we scrounge around on our own. God wants to give us that credit card. He wants His righteousness to flow through us. It's not anything that we have to manufacture or come up with on our own. So let's move on and kind of wrap up with talking about how we do that and what that looks like. So it tells us in Psalm 36, 5 and 6 that God maintains a balance between mercy and faithfulness and righteousness and judgment. Okay? Some of those almost seem like they're contradictory things. But Psalm 36, 5 to 6 is telling us that God is always merciful. He's always just he always does the right thing in any decision. And we often feel the tension of trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. So the question is, is, is if we understand that Jesus Christ died for us so that that righteousness could come into our lives, it, it talks about that in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it talks about that Romans Romans 5.17. I skipped over this before, but uh, this is super interesting. There's a verse in Romans 3.18 where Paul actually quotes Psalm 36. So if you look at uh, Romans 3.18, it says, There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the first line of Psalm 36. And as Paul quotes Psalm 36, uh, just, just three verses later, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made, has been made known. In other words, it's, it's been God's plan all along that we're living out His righteousness. We're not doing it all on our own. I was trying to think of a helpful illustration of how we do this and how, like, what does it actually mean that we live out God's righteousness instead of having to do everything on our own? And I came across this interesting story. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was an author named Richard Bachman 
who published five pretty well-reviewed but not high-selling novels. And what nobody outside of his publisher knew was that that was Richard Bachman was a pseudonym or an alias or a fake name. And the writer's true identity was Stephen King. Maybe you've heard that before. Stephen King was the country's best-selling author at the time. And he wanted to see what it, he wanted to know if he wrote something without his name, if it would still be received favorably, if it would still sell a lot of copies. And so he actually published five books under the alias Richard Bachman. And where the story gets so fascinating is that for four books, nobody realized that this was America's best-selling author. And then finally, just a nondescript bookstore clerk in Washington, D.C., who was also a Stephen King fan, was, was reading through these Richard Bachman novels, and he recognized the voice of his favorite author. Isn't it surprising that more people didn't figure that out? If he's the best-selling author in the country, you would think that more people would recognize the author's voice. But it was just one guy who worked as a bookstore clerk in Washington, D.C. He sent a letter to Stephen King, and then one day when he was working at the bookstore, he got a call from Stephen King, who was like, all right, you got me. We figured it out. I think what's so fascinating is that by reading Stephen King's books, he recognized the, 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 the persona and the thoughts and the, just the, the, the being of his favorite author. So then when he saw it in another place, he recognized it. In the same way as we're trying to flesh out and define what it looks like to live out God's righteousness, we read scripture and we recognize the voice of our author. We recognize what God loves. We recognize what God hates. We recognize what God calls us as people to do. We recognize what it looks like to just saturate a situation in grace. And then as we see the voice of the author in Scripture, now we're able to recognize that same voice in our day-to-day -day situations. Right? As we know what God is like through His book, through Scripture, now... When we're raising a teenager, we know what it's like to dispense grace. When we're two or three decades into a marriage, we know what it's like to love somebody unconditionally, and the list goes on and on. I love how that bookstore clerk recognized the author's voice within the story. And as we read through Scripture, it increases our ability in life with the help of the Holy Spirit to recognize God's voice in the everyday situations that we're in. And as we know what God would do in that situation, then we can choose His righteous approach and His righteous response when we're in those situations. All right, I'd like the worship team to come forward and conclude our service with a song or two. As they do, let me just offer this conclusion and summary statement. As we read through verses like uh, Philippians 3.9, it tells us this. I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which is but one that, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Think about verses like Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one that says this. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot of ways that the Bible communicates this same message to us, but probably the most simple way that it's communicated is through Psalm 36, 6. God's righteousness is like a mountain, but not so that he can keep it, so that it can flow into our lives and into the lives of others.